podcast one production. Hello, my name's Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the unknown stories behind the food that we all love. Paul West is the presenter of the Australian remake of The River Cottage, and the way he found himself as the host of the show is quite extraordinary. He was a farmer from Tassie who worked at Vue de Montfristin until he decided he needed a change and left for greener pastures. What he didn't know then was that eventually that the move would give him the opportunity to teach people the wonders of food through television. He's a lovely bloke full of passion and enthusiasm for homegrown and homemade. I think you'll love the chat. Take a listen. Where did it all start for you? Where did food start for you? Uh, I grew up in regional New South Wales, beautiful part of the world, Hunter Valley, uh, famed for wine, coal mines and thoroughbred horses, of which my family had nothing to do with, uh, all of the above. Um, And we lived in a little town... 900 people, mum and dad had a small business selling firearms, uh, as you do. And, uh, that's the country you're allowed to do that's, that. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so we didn't really have a food culture. Mum and dad were so busy, it was a six-day-a-week uh, six business and it was, you know, nine till six opening hours. And so by the time it came around to dinner, it was this really utilitarian, you know, classic meat, three veg. We always ate very well. Don't get me wrong, I never went without. Um, but there was not... It didn't really fire my imagination with food, I don't think, it, and or or make me realise that it was something that you could make a, a career or dedicate your life to. Yeah, what was that town? Ah, uh, right. So the the where it began was when I was twenty one. I was hitchhiking around Australia, uh, and I was in northern Tasmania, and my very limited resources had run out, and I was staying at a hostel on my last night at the hostel because I had no money, and uh, another traveller told me about the Woofing Organisation, and I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, It stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. Right. International organisation based on the premise of four hours work in exchange for food and accommodation. I thought, oh, geez, I can manage that. Four hours work for food and accommodation. I'm a hungry 21-year-old man. I'm going to eat these poor guys out of house and home. (laughs) (laughs) And then spend the rest of the afternoon on the internet, on Facebook. (laughs) Actually, I don't think that was around back then, but... Um, <laughs> I'll show my age a bit. Uh, so I, I, I went out that day. I got the book. You, you pay like 50 bucks to cover insurance and get your little guidebook. And, um, and luckily in the area where I was, there was a whole stack of farms. Uh, and I just, I read through, found a likely candidate. He was uh, a French man, retired carpenter, lived on 20 acres. Uh, and I liked the sound of his property. It was that uh, a lo- the locality was called Paradise. Upper paradise. Mm. Sorry. So I was like, mm, yeah, paradise. That's like, for me. I can handle that. Uh, so called him up. He picked me up that afternoon. Uh, and then I spent a month with him on his farm. And it was, it was like, it was one of those real bucolic agrarian uh, farms, you know, he was, he was retired. So, you know, it didn't matter if he was making money off it or not. It was purely for the quality of life, this farm, but he was also a very hard worker. So he had an enormous veggie garden. He had a huge orchard. He had ducks and geese and pigs and chickens and sheep. You know, we, we hand dug a well and lined it with stone and he was, he was a French carpenter and somewhat of a master craftsman as well. So yeah, this beautiful home with like a, a stone lined cellar that was full of apples and preserves from summer and beer that he'd brewed. And every meal that we ate, uh, 
in some way came from that property or if it didn't come from that property, uh, it came from a neighbour with which he bartered. I mean, other than sugar and flour and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And I guess I'd never really been exposed to a, a way of life like that before. I didn't know that it existed. I think I kind of did in that fairy tale context of like, oh, but old growing up in the country, fun. did that not exist in New South Wales? <clears throat> Didn't exist in the Hunter Valley? Not where I was, no, because Murrundi was there, there wasn't really a lot of like hobby farms around there. It was quite mountainous country, so uh, you're either you're either worked in some way in the coal mines or the horse studs, or you had a really mountainous beef property that probably ran to thousands of acres, you know, and and. That was it. Uh, I guess the closest to that in the town where I grew up was an old Italian lady called Mrs. Angel, and uh, and she lived right on the highway in a just you know in a suburban sized block, and she had everything. She grew it all. She had fruit trees in the classic way that that you know so many of those of those migrant families did. They used every single available space they had to, to, to grow food. So that was, I guess that was as close as I got to it, but because it wasn't a very, um, culturally diverse township, Marunda, there was Mrs. Angel and the family who ran the Chinese restaurant attached to the bowling club. Uh, it wasn't really, I guess it was kind of a novelty. It was like, Oh, look at that old Italian lady with all her fruit trees and her veggies in her front yard. Where's her lawn? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, what's wrong with you, Mrs. Angel? You could just mow that instead of eating that. Um, but so, but when I lived with this French guy, uh, you know, it was a beautiful time of year. It was, it was mid-autumn, so all the palm fruit were, were, were ripe and we're picking fruit off the tree, like kilos of fruit off the tree every day. Uh, there was a dairy down the road that I used to ride the push bike down and we'd take the raw milk straight from the vat and leave some fruit for the dairy farmer. And I was, so I was 21, I was hitchhiking, so I was living pretty rough, you know. I was you know, living in hostels and camping on the edges of town and not, I didn't have like the most wholesome lifestyle. Uh, and after about a week of living at this place, of going to bed at 9 o'clock, waking up at 5 a.m. and eating all this fantastic food and working outside in the sunshine, I just like I came to life. Like my mm. skin started sparkling, my eyes were clear and white, I was jumping out of bed at 5 a.m. in the morning. And I just saw the quality of life that this man had and went, what else could you possibly aspire to as a human being? You know, you're, you're outside, you're in a beautiful environment, you're connected with the food that you're growing, you're connected with your community and your family. And he just, and there was no stress, no pressure, everything was just, it was fantastic. And I thought, well, I'm 21, he was about 68 at the time, uh, I've got none of the skills required to do this, so... Now I need to tool up to be able to do that, to, to, to live this way of life. And how did you do that? How, well, did, you, how did you tool up? Oh, I did some intense online courses. Uh, that wasn't a – unfortunately, YouTube and online courses weren't really an option at the time. Uh, so I continued woofing to get a handle on growing things. I mean, I didn't grow up in a, in a food culture family, but my mother and her father were great gardeners, really, really, really good gardeners. Um, but I guess for me, it was, it was always like a bit of a punishment because it was school holidays. Mum would always order like five ton of mulch and, and like this enormous, you know, semi-trailer would dump this thing of bark out the front of the house and she'd be like, oh, there you go. There's your school holidays. <laughs> and then when she was finished with me, dad would be like, and there's two ton of iron bark for you to split for winter. Thanks, boy. Um, but uh, so I continued woofing. 
which let me work on lots of great farms uh, in a in a kind of not with the pressure of a paid role. So it didn't matter if you weren't experienced, as long as you were kind of enthusiastic and showed up yep. and didn't complain. Put you back into it. Exactly. I mean, that's all they were after, you know, on these woofing mm-hmm. farms because there's no shortage of people who abuse it, just kind of show up and come on out of bed. Uh, but I, I was loving it. I was having a time in my life. So I was, you know, I didn't. I did eight hours work a day plus. Uh, you know, I didn't just kind of go after lunch. And go well. Technically, it's only four hours for food and accommodation. So thanks, guys. I'll be napping. Uh, so I continued doing that, and then I got involved in the permaculture, I guess, movement you'd call it, or in the field of permaculture, uh, which I learned about through woofing, and also. I, th- I think my small-scale vegetable growing skills started to pick up once I got involved with... So when you said the permaculture movement, yes. expand on that a little bit. Okay, so it's uh, it's an Australian-developed concept uh, that relates to... Uh, and it's kind of most basic way you could say food, but it, it's... The, the, the word itself is the amalgamation of two words, permanent culture. Uh, and it's a way of growing food and having societies and communities uh, that... That regenerates and gives. It's not. It's not a. It's not a taxing system where the longer you grow something there, the the, the poorer the soil becomes. Uh, it's 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 about growing things in a way that you can continue to do so. And when I say growing things, I don't just mean food. I mean community and well-being and food and soil life and, and ecology all around you. So it's a, it's a pretty broad uh, concept. So that's a pretty deep concept. How how old were you at the time? Uh, I would have been twenty one. At right. that stage. Uh, but it made sense to me. I think it was quite logical. So you're enthused by it. You mm, loved it. You liked yeah, what you saw. You wanted to immerse yourself in it. What was the one thing that you took out of that that you still hold on to today? <clears throat> I think that uh, in particular, I think I can trace it back to the to the, to the the French man that I stayed with who, who wasn't technically a permaculturian. I just made that word up, but a practicer. Of, yeah, no, I like it. You can use that permaculture community, permaculturian. Um, but I think he embodied it, uh, is that... You really don't need much to be happy and healthy in life. Uh, and what you do need is a bit of connection, it's connection to where you are, uh, to what you eat and to the people around you. And for me, that's, that's really held true throughout my whole life. And the happiest times uh, when I've been able to fly or live as close to that philosophy as I can and the times which I've, I guess I found the hardest was when my, I subconsciously moved away from that philosophy and went down a certain rabbit hole or path and then a, a year or two later kind of had the reality check where I went, wait a second, what, what, this, isn't, this isn't what I'm about. This isn't what I believe in. I've come way too far down the garden path and then I have a little kind of realignment and, and get back on track. Is that your personality? Do you tend to do that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I can get a little bit distracted and uh, binoculared, blinkered, sorry, is the word that I was after. Yeah, I can get a little blinkered on, on concepts. I'd like to say I'm enthusiastic, that when I see something that I, that I, that I like, that I, uh, I pursue it as wholly uh, and as deeply as I can. Um, and that was certainly true for, for growing and, and permaculture and, and I guess to a degree cooking as well because what uh, the woofing and permaculture didn't give me was the ability to cook. I, I, can't, I couldn't cook. I was terrible, absolutely hopeless. Uh, typical fresh out of home man whose mum did all the cooking his whole life. I could burn toast, uh, and I mean, I, I like to tell this story, and it's the it's it's to give people hope if they think they can't cook. That my first uh, dish that I cooked out of home was fried rice. I was living in a share house with four guys. We're all broke, and so we had the basics for some fried rice. So I'm going to cook this, guys. Let's go. 
uh, took out a fry pan, put some oil in, put some raw rice in and just started just started frying it. You know, this is pretty logical. This is fried rice, fried rice. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's how that's how silly I was or how naive to the ways of cooking that I was. And um, I just thought, you know, fried rice, how hard can it be? It's fried rice. Uh, so it was terrible. And we all, but we had nothing else to eat. So we all endured it after frying it for about 45 minutes. And I don't know if anyone uh, listening has, has actually – <laughs> fried rice for 45 minutes for all rice, but it, it doesn't cook. It just kind of dehydrates and yeah. it absorbs oil and then desiccates and basically just becomes this dense oil grit. Uh, but we we ate it and I was off cooking duties for the rest we of the day. We need a medal for eating it. I yeah, mean, the other thing you, you could yeah. do, I mean, if you not put the oil, you could pound it and <laughs> yeah, add, to, right, add yeah, it to a yeah, salad like a right, lark. Very nice. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, see, that would have been nice, uh, but that would have been so incredibly far beyond any of our skill set or imagination at that time. Certainly now I think I could have uh, mustered something with it, but no. So it was pretty quiet at the table as we all, as the four of us ate as you gave it a my go. fried rice. And it was See, just I reckon it's a step up almost <laughs> to what you hear most of the time, which is students living out of cans. So they yep. got one pot yep. and lots of cans. And then whatever's left at the end of the week goes in the pot with whatever can of food was left over. It could be corn, it could be tomatoes, it could be tuna. They're... They're bad. Yeah, so, so I tried to cook. So you, at tried. least you had an ingredient yes. that was almost, you know, unprocessed <laughs> Thanks, and guys. fresh. Make me feel a lot better about my, my humble culinary beginnings now. <laughs> so this was, so you, it wasn't – so knowing what you do now, people mm. know what you do now, uh, it wasn't a straight path because you'd no. imagine then if you were, you know, in – in kind of broiled, embroiled with all this, that you would have been doing this for your whole life, but that, that didn't happen. No, no. So I, I was about twenty three and had a pretty good handle on growing stuff. When I thought, oh, now I need to learn how to cook. Um, and but did you have a, an idea in mind? Like, I mean, you don't just. Go, I mean, if you're a farmer and you're yeah. growing stuff, I'm sure most farmers, in fact, yep. a lot of farmers eat very simply. Mm. You know, they're, they're not thinking, oh, I need to go and cook. Why? Why did you think? I need to go and cook. Well, because for me, it, I traced it back to that that experience on the wolfing farm originally. Is that that growing growing the ingredients was one part of that lifestyle, uh, but if you couldn't prepare them and put them on the table, then then a, a really critical component of what made that lifestyle so appealing was missing. That that beautiful fresh food on you know, simply prepared. Like there was no there was not a great deal of culinary wizardry to it, um, but. Uh, I guess I felt like I just wanted to get a, a really good grasp on it. And all the work that I was doing uh, in the kind of gardening, growing space was volunteer work for community organisations, community gardens, uh, and, you know, at, at need residents of Newcastle where I was living at the time. So a real great kind of stellar place to start your culinary career. And my, uh, my, one of my good friends was the head chef and I went, you know, Simo, I want to do an apprenticeship as I was on dishes one day, you know, they got the plastic apron and the gloves on and he's, he was a Kiwi and he's looking at me, he's going, okay, <laughs> you can start tomorrow. Because what I didn't realise, it was then uh, as an, a first-year apprentice chef, I'd be working three times as many hours for the same pay and still doing dishes. Um, so that place unravelled surpri- unsurprisingly after about six months of me being there. So I went to, uh, I just heard that there was this little restaurant strip. There was a chef that had just started at one of the restaurants up there who, who had worked for Marco Pierre White in London. And I was like, no, oh, I'm going to have a go with this chefing gaff. So I'll, um, I'll go and work for that guy because he's obviously, he obviously knows what he's doing. And he was, so his family owned that restaurant and he had, he was, he was burnt out from that whole Uber fine dining scene, you know, whole raft of 
personal problems and they basically brought him up there to, to head chef this restaurant and keep him close and dry <laughs> and very dry, I think. But I don't know how much they succeeded at that. Um, but he was a great character um, and, a, and a, a really good guy. And so, you know, we were cooking on because it was a, one of those places that's open breakfast, lunch, dinner. Dinners in winter were often quite quiet. And so I'd be grilling him about, you know, what's life like at those fine dining restaurants? And he'd be telling me stories of London and Marco and, you know, the huge weeks and the intensity and the pressure and the amazing food. And, you know, I'm this, you know, mature age, 23, still at that age, apprentice, going, yeah, oh man, this sounds great. This sounds great. And so after about another six months, he unraveled and left and and the, the, the restaurant was kind of rudderless without him. So I went, you know what, I'm... I'm going to do this. I'm still, I'm just about to finish my first year. I'm going to go work somewhere really, really flash. Not in Newcastle. I tried to get a job there, but there was only mm. two hatted restaurants at the time, both of which didn't need me. So I didn't want to live in Sydney. Uh, I wanted to live in Melbourne. And so I went and I went down to the newsagents and bought a copy of the um, the Age Good Food Guide, which they had to pull out from a, you know, a dusty shelf somewhere being New South Wales. And uh, went home and started at the front and worked my way to the back and sent off applications. And I only really sent off three, and the first one was to Voodamon, and they got back that day. Wow. Can I ask, when you, when you were doing the dishes, because yes. it's, it's quite a familiar story for young chefs. Obviously, you're a mature-aged mm. apprentice, mm. but standing there scrubbing these dirty pots, did it not put you off? No. At the time of my life, there was bawdy banter. We were swearing and carrying on. We were listening to music. There was all the coffee I could food. drink. Exactly. I was and flirting with at- waitresses, you know, because I'm the only person they talk to, the dishy, because the head chef, no one wants to talk to them. He's too angry. I've heard this so yeah, many times. I'm like, oh, this is, hey, oh, hey. And then looking at the chefs and thinking, I like what they do. Yeah. That, that yeah. was the idea. Yeah, that's right. Do, not- do you remember looking at something and going, oh, I wish I could do that? Or, um, I, you know, why, you know, that's the thing I want to do. I mean, were you impressed with their skills? Did you like that? You know, like was it was it a fact that you loved how they used a chopping knife or that, you know, the smells coming out of a frying pan or? I think it was, I think for me it was the real camaraderie of a kitchen <clears throat> brigade, the environment that I, that I kind of liked the semi-lawlessness of it. That's probably one of the last most unprotected workplaces on the planet. I mean, the stuff that happens in a commercial kitchen, you wouldn't get away with on the roughest construction site in Melbourne, you know, uh, the the kitchen union's pretty weak. So some of the behaviour, not that I condoned the bad behaviour, but we certainly had a very, very good time in the kitchen. And and for me, it was was work and paid work. It was probably the best, even though I was only on an apprentice's wage, it was the first time I was really getting a consistent weekly wage in and I, and I, I guess I was kind of good at it. I, you know, I, I got the process. It was a very simple, you know, it's, it's not rocket science cooking. I mean, once you're into the higher echelons, yes, there's a whole degree of technique and finesse that can complicate things. But at its core, running a, uh, or being a part of a commercial kitchen team, it's pretty straightforward. Mm. You don't need to have a huge vocabulary or, or you know, or but have the any, enthusiasm and the dexterity helps. That helps, certainly. Both of which I presume you have. Yes, and the ability to handle the pressure. Because that's another, the other thing that, often separates the, you know, the wheat from the chaff in a commercial kitchen is that you can have a passion for food, uh, you know, and put on a fabulous dinner party, but but cooking dinner for 250 people night in, night out with, you know, under that, the mega pump is a totally different story. And I guess that, that really resonated with me. I really, really enjoyed the the push and the pump. And then, um, so I applied to work in Voudemont. I thought, oh, what's the, what's the harm, you know? Sure. 
they're, they're never going to say yes. So I, I kind of wrote this groveling email. I think it's like, oh, to whom it may concern, I would absolutely love the privilege to come and at least have a job <laughs> trial for you. Um, and of course, what I didn't realize was that restaurants like that are always looking for, for fresh recruits <laughs> uh, for various reasons. Um, and they said, sure, you can come down. Uh, so I spent a week's salary on a return flight and accommodation the next week, flew down on my days off. Um, and it, I flew down on a Tuesday. I flew down Monday night to do my trial on the Tuesday. And um, so I'd, I'd, the biggest kitchen I'd worked in at that stage was three chefs. Uh, and it was, you know, a kind of breakfast, lunch, dinner kind of So there's a place. shock coming. Oh, <laughs> so for, if you've ever been to the old little Collins Street, Vudamon site, um, you have the cafe at the front and that's where I was told to go. I was there at eight o'clock and I walked in, I said, hey, I'm here for a job trial in the kitchen. They said, come with me. Yes. And they walked me through the dining room, uh, which was intimidating enough because it's probably the, the grandest room that I'd ever been in regardless. And then through the kitchen and, and for any chefs out there or any people familiar with the hospitality industry, if a restaurant's closed Sunday, Monday, Tuesday morning is one of the most frenetic, unfriendly times in a kitchen because no one wants to be back at work. Everyone's under the pump uh, and lunch is looming ever, ever, ever closer. And so I was kind of trotted through what felt like a prisoner walking through their first day of um, incarceration. With and people you know, hitting their metal cups Oh, on yeah, the that's right. Fish, fish, fish. <laughs> You're going straight to the fish section. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and But no one looked up. No one was smiling. It was like it was just this intensity. And I was like, oh. And they took me upstairs to the staff change room, the head chef. I was like, oh, there you go. Um, get in your whites. Come on down. We'll see, you. we'll see you in two seconds. And I remember standing there and going, oh, there was a back gate to the alleyway right next to the stairs up to this change room. Maybe I should just go out there and never come back because I don't know that I'll actually want to go down in there right now. But I thought, no, no, you've spent your week's wage. I'm fine down here. What's the worst that can happen? So I got changed, went down and um, they they put me on some menial task. It was actually, no, I remember what it was because it was, it was, it was punching long cylinders out of a turnip with a, with a hole cutter and then running them over a mandolin and threading them on a skewer of, um, of a cinnamon quill, which then got pan fried. Um, and because the kitchen was so full and it was so intense, the only place for me was on the, uh, the front of house side of one of those big marble passes that they used, to, they used to have there. So I'm the only chef on the dining room side. Everyone else has got their spot. No one's making room for me. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm doing my bit, I'm doing my bit. Bang, knock the top of my, off my finger with the mandolin. And it's like, if you've ever cut yourself with a mandolin, they cut deep and clean and, and bleed fast. a lot, very, very fast. Beautiful. So I've been, you know, I've been there for about ten minutes, and I've got this like this Frankfurt red finger as the blood pours down. I'm like, oh, chef, I've cut my finger, and I'm just like, oh, this is going so bad. They're never going to the, tr- the me trial back. is not, not yeah, looking yeah, good. Ten at this minutes stage. in, ten minutes into a sixteen hour day trial, and I'm like, the wheels are totally off. But it gets, but it gets worse because I, you know, they they basically pointed me to the first aid box and said, there you go, sort yourself out, and I was like, oh, okay made this terrible bandage, you know, and it was this kind of like bit of scrunched up bit of paper towel with a cut off finger from a rubber glove, really manky looking, uh, not not a great look. And so I'm going back, I'm prepping on the restaurant side of the pass and who should walk in, but oh my God, it's Shannon Bennett. Because I obviously knew, I didn't know Shannon, but I knew who he was. And he was, so he was having a chat with the head chefs and at the far end of the pass. And as he's chatting with them, I can see his, his gaze kind of coming down to me He's like, oh, who's this fella? And I'm like, in my, in my head, I'm like, oh no, he's going to come down. He's going to introduce himself 
and he's going to want to shake my hand and I'm going to put this hand out and it's going to have the most manky, disgusting, blood-covered finger he's ever seen on it. He's going to kick me out of the kitchen straight away and tell me never to come back. He finished the conversation. He started walking down. He's made eye contact. I'm like, oh, no. So I had my hand behind my back and I kind of, at the very last second, flicked this bandage off oh, no. and gave him a quick <laughs> shake of the hand and then like stood there with it bunched up in a fist on my hip. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, I've come down from Newcastle. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really hope I get He's like, good on you, young man. Oh, great to see enthusiasm. Oh, I really hope you make the trial and we see you again. Uh, and so that was the beginning of my trial at Voudemont. The rest of the day was pretty uneventful, but that was a um, certainly a baptism of fire. This is A Plate to Call Home. I'm Gary Megan. More from Paul West after the break. So take me to River Cottage. Okay. Because that's where most people that are listening know you from. Yes. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> I, I I'm sure we've the, jumped a few years. No, but, but not, not a huge amount, really. There was only a few years between me finishing it at, at the VU Empire and starting, um, starting River Cottage. So I met my now wife when I was working at VU. She was the manager of the cafe. And um, once I finished my time, I was like, I'm going back to Newcastle. I need some human time after that. To You're like, back where that chef was. Yeah, that's you know? right. Yeah, that's right. Burnout. Dependent burnout and people looking after Mom, mom, where's my long neck? Um, <laughs> and so we were looking to strike because I, I had that realisation. I'm like, this cooking in a restaurant like this isn't what I, why I started to cook. I don't, it's excluding me from outside. I, you know, I'm working 90 hour weeks. I never sit down. I never eat. I never cook for myself. Uh, so we, we went on a bit of a journey to find somewhere where we could strike a balance. And that took us to Tasmania before it was cool. Uh, well, I mean, it was cold always, but before it was on people's cool radar, uh, we, we, we were living there when Mona opened. So I just like to get that in there. Yeah, I'm sure so there's everyone a few knows people how cool I am. moved in the 60s and yeah, 70s. They're going to disagree. Oh yeah, mate. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're still in the same clothes. Yes. <laughs> Warm though, warm, that's right. <laughs> well, you don't sweat that much down there. So you moved so to cool. Tassie. Where did you go in Tassie? Uh, so I was in Hobart and uh, we were both working there and um, I was trying to figure out a way where I could spend more time growing food and working as a chef. So I was working a couple of casual jobs as a chef about 60 hours a week. So that was, you know, that's still nothing compared to when you're doing the big 90-hour weeks. And um, and trying to get a little market garden going and growing food fruit and vegetables in my backyard, which was on the South Arm Peninsula. And um, it was December 2012 and one of our family friends uh, got in touch and said, hey, they're, um, they're making an Australian version of River Cottage. Paul should apply. And I was obviously a huge fan of the UK series, had seen it all uh, and followed with great interest Hugh's journey, mainly because it was the first time that I'd ever seen that lifestyle that I lived in Tasmania articulated on television. I'm like, this guy, this guy knows exactly what I'm talking about. And um, so I went, oh yeah, oh wow, looking for a host for River Cottage Australia. Oh, I could probably be a chance of that. Uh, but then I went, you know what, I don't think I want to apply for that because um, all I could think of was the fact that it was such a loved internationally franchise with such a kind of a, a, a key host, like it's a personality-driven program just as much as it is content-driven. Everyone loves Hugh. Um, and I thought, well, this will be the first time it's been franchised and it'll be the first person other than Hugh Fernley-Whittingstall <laughs> to, to host the River Coach program. I don't know that I'm going to be up for that 
comparison. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I'll be able to weather that. And it was at the time where a uh, another outrageously successful UK personality-driven show uh, had been adapted into Australia and axed very promptly, uh, <coughs> Top Gear. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm not Shane Jacobson or Shane Warne. I'm not even a Shane at all. So I can't bounce back from from a, a bombed Australian franchise. I just would have been the guy that forever ruined River Cottage. And so I went, nah, you know what? I'm happy down here. I'm on a good path. Life's good. I'm happy. We're all happy. I'm not going to apply. And then on the very last day of applications, I got cold feet from not applying and went, you know what? What's the harm? And uh, kind of feverishly, I got home from work. I'd done the day shift, so I got home at about six and went, you know what? I'm doing it. Pull up the online application and it's this like 10-page questionnaire. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, kind of expecting it to just to be fill out your address and tell us (laughs) something about yourself. And, you know, like most chefs, I was a really bad typer. They're kind of, you might be able to hear that noise distractingly in the background. That's me pecking the desk with two fingers um, in that classic chef typing way. So it took me a long time uh, to fill out this questionnaire. And I, I think I sent it off at about 11.30 p.m. on the last day of applications. And um, surprisingly, I got a call the next morning. And so I was living in Tasmania and my phone rang. It was an O2 number. And I thought, oh, it's bloody Telstra or someone like that. You know, what, what do you bastards want? You know, I'm, I paid that bill. Uh, and <laughs> that was, let's get, hey, my name's uh, blah, blah. And I'm the, uh, I'm the casting producer for River Code Australia. We just read your lengthy application, but, uh, <laughs> but we really liked it. But, you know, it's for a TV show and you didn't even put a picture or anything on. Um, do you reckon you could... You know, maybe film a little video and you've seen the original program, have you? Yes. Uh, so you could, if you could, you know, mock up a little mini River Cottage segment with yourself in it and, um, and send it in and we'll, we'll take it from there. And so being a chef, working in December, didn't have any days off other than Christmas Day. So I, um, I filmed Christmas lunch basically and we, we cooked a turkey and we went out and picked some, some cherries and made a lovely cherry-based dessert and just a little bit of fun and colour And because I was, I was very familiar with the, the UK series so I was like, they want to have a bit of fun here um, and sent it off, uh, edited it with some freeware editing software on Christmas Day, much to my wife's delight, uh, and sent it off. And I, I was expecting the same level of enthusiasm and rapidness of response that I got from my written application because I thought, well, if they like the written one, this is even better. Uh, but of course, the next day was Boxing Day and they were in office, so they were actually off for two weeks. And um, I just thought, oh, oh, they must have got it and no one liked it, so no one's called me back. Oh, well. But then on the first business day back in early January, Monday morning, phone call, Paul, we've loved your video. We love it, mate. We're going to fly you to Sydney for a screen test. And uh, so I did that. And it, I left Tasmania at 6 a.m. in the morning and it was 6 degrees. And I flew to Sydney and it was uh, 43 degrees. It was the hottest day in Sydney's recorded history, January, a few years back. So I wilted like the Tasmanian snowflake that I was at the time and uh, then flew back to Tasmania that night to six degrees again and got sick for a fortnight. Um, and then there was one more screen test, uh, which was a mock-up cooking segment, like a studio-style cooking segment. It was at the executive producer's house in Sydney. And I, that was that was intimidating uh, because the first screen test was just two people, a little kind of handy cam, essentially a uh, an interview version of the questionnaire. But the the, the last one, the shortlist screen test was um, – was a full crew, two camera, soundo, director, couple of producers, the executive producer, and I caught a taxi from the airport to this place 
and knocked on the front door and they said, right, sweet, get your mic on. Here's the ingredients he asked for. There's the kitchen bench. Go. And, and you'd never done any television. Oh, no, 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 absolutely not. Um, so that was, that was a bit intimidating but managed to get through it on nervous and enthusiastic energy and then went back to Tassie again that night and um, kind of waited on bated breath. Uh, and so everyone, you know, my wife had been following my progression, my, my, the, the two people that I was working for. Everyone's like, oh, you've got it. Oh, you've got it. Oh, you'll be, you're a natural at it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get this, you know. And I think every night from that last screen test to eventually finding out about the job, I just would stare at the roof above my bed going, what if this happened? No, don't be silly. But what if? But no, don't be stupid. It's never going to happen. And then, yeah, fair enough. Another week later, Friday night, uh, I used to work at an Italian restaurant and I I was kind of expecting some sort of call this week. So I kept my phone on me, which I rarely do in the kitchen. And um, uh, five o'clock, I'm running the service Double double sitting, uh, five o'clock phone rings, and it's the it's the series producer. And he's like blah 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 blah. blah. Oh, you've got the job, and I, I was stunned. But but because uh, this restaurant, which was all Italian boys, had been following my progress, they knew it was this call. So they've all like packed around me like a scrum, and we've, there's about ten of us listening to this <laughs> phone call, and they're all listening like yes yes, and they said you've got the job. So they've all gone yeah. <laughs> and I stood there like like a stunned mullet, just going, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. All right, um, I'll um, yep, I'll call you on Monday, and we'll take it from there. And then, of course, had to go straight into like a pumping service with this massive news. I'm like standing there on the pans, going, "Your life's about to change." I want to kind of now dig in a little bit and find out about you know what it what it's done for you in terms of the ideas you had when you're on that. Right. Farm back yeah. when you were 21. Because right. because this is what it's led into, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, when I see you now, you're championing sustainability yes. and local and yep. farms. and yep. So so where's this all taken you to now? I think it's made me question my need to be uh, out on a large property. Uh, I think that for the, 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 the components of that lifestyle that really – resonated with me uh, is, the, is the growing food and, and the community nature of it. And what I found on River Cottage, and this is, this sound probably stupid to a lot of people, is that it was, I don't know, I just don't want to be on a farm. Like it's, uh, I, there's got to be a fine balance. And I think when I look to old European societies, I think that they had the balance. This notion in Australia where, you know, you're not live, if you're living in the country, you've got to be out on a thousand acre property, you've got to be 20 k's from your nearest neighbour, you've got to have three land cruisers, you know, the kids have to go to school two hours on a bus. That doesn't appeal to me uh, because I need that regular human interaction. Uh, now, I grew up in a small town, so for me, it's, it was never about escaping the grind of city life. It wasn't like, oh, oh, to live a simpler life in the country compared to this rat race in the city. I grew up in the simple life in the country and so I could easily return to it. But so my focus now is not so much that small scale hobby farming. It's more about helping people and teaching people that you can, you can pretty much have that river cottage lifestyle in your backyard. There's not a great deal that you can't do other than maybe keeping a milking cow and some pigs, uh, but you can certainly grow a lot of veggies, a lot of fruit trees. You can keep some chooks. If you're really enthusiastic, you can even raise your own meat. I'm talking like rabbits and guinea pigs and stuff like that here or some crickets or protein in the form of mushrooms. Um, but 
you can certainly be connected to your food, you can be connected to your community and you can have a hand in the way that your food's being grown. Because I, in the peripheral work to River Cottage, I, I travel around Australia a fair bit doing cooking shows, stuff like that, you know, festivals as you do yourself, Gary. And um, I was meeting a lot of people going, oh, Paul, this, I love River Cottage, it's the best. One day... Yeah. One day we'll, oh, you know, You're one day. you 20 acres and oh, we'll do that. We'll do that one day. Yeah, one day. And I always try to talk people down from that because if you think they're going and doing a 20-acre lifestyle block, hobby farm at, when you're retired or when you – if you think it's going to be relaxing, it's, it's the total opposite of that. And I think that River Cottage, in a way, did a little disservice to, to people's expectations about running a small farm and that it kind of made it look like, well, isn't this nice? Let's sit down for some lunch and how about we make some Monte Carlo biscuits and have a cup of tea and let's pay for that fence with jam, um, which is definitely not the reality. It's a lot of hard work. It's all weather. I mean, it's very rewarding. Um, but for me, it's not where I want to be right now, especially now I've got kids. Yeah. Uh, I went, I caught an hour bus to school every day and an hour bus home from school every day. I want my kids to be able to live somewhere where they can walk or push bike to school and where if I want to go get a coffee or the paper or the mail, uh, I don't have to get in a car and drive for 20 minutes. I can, I can walk. So you've got you've, you're now channeling Mrs. Angel, not that's right, uh, yeah, not, not Jean, not, the, old not French Jean guy. the French that's farmer, right. I really on, a, am. on a big block. Because, that's right. You know that's kind of urban, yeah, sustainability in a that's sense. That's right, right? And, and it's totally accessible for everyone. I mean, we we are a ninety five percent urban population now. There's a very very small shred of us that still live out on on property. And when I say urban, I'm still talking about regional towns, but within the confine of town as well. So this. In that demographic, there's there's not really any roadblocks other than accessible growing space. But then, of course, there's a whole raft of other things you can do that I won't go into. So for this is for me, this is where the main fight is. There's a there's a lot of great small farmers out there that are that are fighting the good fight in terms of raising awareness about the importance of regenerative agriculture, about ethical raising of meats, about not using chemicals in vegetable production. But for me, in terms of engaging the everyday person into empowering them to do something about it, I find that coming to the urban space was essential. Have you got some success stories that you've, you know, people that follow you that are, that have done it and yeah. are growing stuff and you go, look at that, that's what I wanted to achieve out of this? Well, it's for me it's, it's, it's quite humbling really is that, and it took me a while to appreciate this, is that when you're in the public eye, that you do have an impact on people's lives, especially when you're hosting a TV program. It's, you know, because for us it was quite uh, remote. You know, when we were shooting, there might be five people there, you know, and it's this kind of little compact crew and we'd be following it just be a day in the life. But what it took me a long time to appreciate was that, you know, anywhere between, you know, hundred to 300,000 people might be watching that on a single night and much more cumulative and even more so now it's on SBS and that, that people were watching that having conversations with their families about food provenance, about the way animals are raised, about ethical meat eating, about small diversified farming. And I've met so many people who have said that it's the only show that they watch as a family, that dad's happy, mum's happy, kids are happy. And I've got a lot of photos of people sending me with their dogs up on the sideboard, looking at the, you know, looking, (laughs) barking at the screen. The dogs are happy. So whenever I go out and do public events, I mean, it's almost Every time someone, especially a young child, maybe primary school age, drags mum up, 
drags that up and says, I keep chickens and I grow vegetables in my backyard and I did it because I watched you on River Cottage and this is the best, that's what I want to do, I want to grow vegetables when I grow up. I'm like, how good is that? Yeah. To have that positive impact on on young people in particular uh, and and show them this way of life in a way that I guess I never saw, which I, well, I kind of touched on earlier, was that to me that way of life I didn't know existed. Uh, and there was no real TV show. I don't think River Cottage was being aired in Australia when I was at that age. But um, but now, you know, it's on it's on it's on screens with River Cottage Australia, and kids can watch it with their families, and they can go, oh wow! And I know a lot of people, especially in the urban environment, were using it as a conversation starter with their children about, uh, say, the difference between cage and free range eggs about. Uh, feedlot or pastured animals, uh, and and indeed about the ethics of eating animal products at all. Um, one of the warnings on uh, River Cottage and the and the opening credits is warning: general audience contains mild animal slaughter themes, which I've never seen in any other show other than that one. But when we killed an animal on national television, a pig uh, to to eat that I'd raised, I thought that the the the, the, the kind of hardline vegan community was going to come after me in a big way, but I was actually surprised that it was, they, they commented a lot of the kind of hardline vegan folk, but they, what they were saying was more people need to see this. This should be on TV. Yeah. Even, I mean, even on MasterChef. Yes. Any idea of anything bloody or whole will just never make it. Yeah. No. What are the biggest challenges in your mind that you'd like to have Mm. some impact? Things that you think probably are the most, um, important right now for us to get a handle on? For me, I think it would be individuals having more food sovereignty uh, because there's, there's, I think it was an old Spanish saying that civilization is only three days from chaos and that three days is what happens when you cut the food supply off, Uh, that you can have the highest and loftiest ideals but as soon as people go hungry, then all that goes out the window. And I mean, all you have to do is look at the aftermath of any natural disaster, even in recent times in Australia, you know, where shops, the, the shelves are emptied. And they, I remember it happening in the Queensland floods a few years back and they had all this great file footage of empty shelves in Woolworths and Coles. I mean, what, what would you do? Because mm. it's, it's something we absolutely take for granted. And, and it's even beyond being able to go to the supermarket now and that you can jump on your phone, you can open an app, punch in what you want and the food shows up 25 minutes later. Uh, so I think that we're, it's very risky I mean, everything's working now okay, but that's not to say that it will permanently. And for me, having giving more localised control over food production makes for a more resilient society and, when, and, and break that down for us. So when you say local, yes. how far does that... So I, I guess what I would like to encourage people to do and, and assist them uh, in, in skilling them up to do so is to, is to grow just a little bit of food. And I mean, it's, there's this kind of misconception that you have to, if you grow it all, you've got to be, you've got to be self-sufficient. You've got to grow everything, which is a total farce. And I've never, ever, ever met anyone who was genuinely self-sufficient. Uh, and I've met a lot of people in that space. <laughs> uh, but even if it's growing something as simple as like some herbs on your, on your balcony or in a little sunny windowsill or some, some like a, just a couple of lettuce in a pot that you can take fresh leaves out, that, that, that's how it starts. Anyway, yeah. you get a handle on that and you go, wait a second, this growing cape is not too hard. Plants want to grow. Uh, and so to encourage people just to, just to try, you know, I think there's, we feel like 
a lot of people have got failed stories because they go out and they try to turn their whole backyard into a massive veggie patch in one big furious weekend. They spend a thousand bucks at Bunnings. They, you know, they're going at it. And then Sunday afternoon, they're exhausted. They don't come back to the garden for three weeks and everything's dead. Yeah. Uh, when realistically, growing food's a little, a lot. So, so plant some spinach, plant some yeah, chard, stuff that exactly. grows. And that- exactly. And spinach or chard is like, <clears throat> like silver beet, rainbow chard. Mm. They're bomb-proof. Yeah. Like they are so forgiving. Like they, in fact, they seem to go better when they're neglected. Yeah. And same with some perennial herbs, you know, things like rosemary, oregano, thyme. They're very, very forgiving and, and like growing in dry climates. So that's one area. What about, yes. and you touched on it, things like... Um, uh, you know, caged eggs or, yes. you know, uh, free-range chickens. I yeah. mean, I, it, I get the impression as a foodie that most of the population think that that's done. Yes. It's been sorted out. Mm, um, but it's so just much. like kind of one little bit of this, you know, huge problem. And, of course, we've just seen all of the uh, live export stuff that people yeah. get very emotive about. Yeah. And I do too. Yeah. I, I just go, Roughly so. You know, I know people's livelihoods are at stake, but somebody – you know, government takes some kind of control over yes. this. Do something because yeah. it's wrong. Yes. How, how do you feel about things like that? And so, you mentioned vegans too. I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a whole bunch of things going on in that space mm. and they're kind of on the periphery. Are you trying to do things that are bringing this together or not? So I guess for me what I'd like, for me that that triage of skills begins with cooking. It doesn't begin with growing. It doesn't mm. begin with understanding the depths of the ethics about food consumption or production. If, if you can't cook, you don't care. Like if you if you don't cook an egg, if you don't fry your own eggs to put on toast, then why would you care that one that had lived a life on grass and had this beautiful radiant yolk and the you know strong white is any better than one that you pay three bucks a dozen less for that just turns into a blob as soon as you crack it on the plate? We just don't care. It's an egg. It's an egg. Who cares? I'm going to get the cheapest one. But once you start to learn how to cook, then yeah, there's and this is what the way it worked for me at least was that that appreciation for better ingredients starts to make sense. It's not just something that you're just like, oh, I'm just going to buy the most expensive cut of beef or I'm going to buy organic produce because people tell me it's better. Uh, that once you actually start cooking with it and tasting with it, uh, tasting it, that's when you go, oh, wait a second, this this does, there is more taste to this. It does have more firmness. The texture's better. There's so much about this that's better. Uh, and for me as well, that in, in terms of cookery education, it's, it's about simplicity. It's about telling people or showing people that you, you don't have to do some Heston Blumenthal 10-course degustation to consider yourself a cook or to put food on the table for your family. What you do need is good ingredients. And really that's it. Like, a, So my approach for cookery now, when I was at that fine dining chef's time chapter, it was about the kind of wizardry and the, and the, the pizzazz on the plate and how beautiful it looked and, and, and of course, the taste. Uh, but now that I'm not... A com- like not a chef, I'm not working in a kitchen commercially and I, I'm cooking for a family, for me it's about maximising the nutrition for my family in a way that doesn't compromise my ethics um, and is done in the shortest amount of time possible. In in, in an ideal world, yes. and you've probably said it, but in, <laughs> in 20 years' time, if Paul West was king. Oh, when? Would if, it be king? What do you mean? Would it be if? king? Yeah, would it be, a, let's call him a king. No, well, democratically president. elected president. president, yes, in his 10th yeah. term. Yeah, would that be democratic or <laughs> yeah, not democratic? Right, yeah. I mean, it's just how you look at it. Everyone seems how, to how die it, mysterious how illnesses. Would it, how would it look? Uh, so for me, I think we would have an intense amount of food growing happening everywhere. We wouldn't have golf courses. We'd have very shrunken, you know, open park spaces and there would be food grown everywhere. There'd be on balconies, there'd be on verges, there'd be in public 
parks. It'd be where places like golf courses are. And it would be an integral part of the fabric of our community. So you could graze goats on public land, you know, in, the, in a way that cities were. Like this, this isn't pie in the sky stuff. I'm not making this up as like a, well, wouldn't this be interesting if it happened? This is actually the way cities looked for a very, very, very long time in human history because we didn't have the transportation ability and refrigeration and road transport to be able to grow food really remotely and get it to us. Uh, so to be able to come back to something like that, I think would be, would be wonderful. And if we're talking 20 years time, you know, everything's going to be automated by that stage. We're all going to be on a base universal income. So people will have that time to do it without that pressure of life and career. I mean, that is actual pie in the sky stuff, mm. base universal income, automation, maybe not. But, uh, but to, to see our cities populated with human tended life. And for me, the um, growing food and eating it is this wonderful panacea to, to so many modern illnesses. You know, you're moving it's non-sedentary, like gardening is the ultimate gentle workout. It's like, it's like yoga where you can actually eat something yeah. at the end. It's up, you're moving, you're squatting, you're kind of bending, you've got hip movement, knee movement, all these things that seize up on people because we stop doing them. Uh, you're growing nutrient-dense food, which is essential for our well-being, and then you're cooking it and sharing it with the community around you. And that fostering of community and, and connection with people, both your loved ones and people that you don't know, uh, is is a wonderful thing and essential for spiritual happiness. Yeah. So for me, it's the magic bullet. Growing food, well, it's, cooking it's and eating. In theory, it. longer, healthier, happier. And it's funny how you mention that. I've, I've got a little plot of land down in Main Ridge and oh. you say gardening's like the ultimate gentle workout. I don't know if I have the same uh, experience as you do, but I go, as I'm gardening, I often go, so why do people belong to a gym? Like, yeah, you know, why do they go to a small room, you know, with... Uh, uh, air conditioning in it and yeah. run on a, on a stationary machine rather than actually just getting their hands into the soil or just going for a walk and doing something That's out right. in the open and understanding what's going on. So it's lovely to hear. And, this, and you know what's funny? Out of this whole interview, can't cook, don't care. <laughs> Is that yours? Yeah, I think so. I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't claim that saying. Did I just say that? No, yeah. no so I said if you don't cook, don't then cook, why would you care? Yeah. Why would you care? Where do they go if they want to see what you're doing these days? Uh, so I'm doing a fair bit of stuff for the ABC at the moment, uh, Gardening Australia, Backroads, and some documentary stuff with Catalyst. Uh, so that's where I'm really on screens. Of course, you can see all the fantastic stuff we shot with River Courage Australia on SBS, 6pm weeknights and on demand. Uh, and then there's Instagram, underscore Paul, underscore West underscore. There's a lot of underscores. That's what happens when you've got a name like when you Paul go, West. See if you have a name you know, like, uh, what, what was it, the one you were yeah. talking about? Oh. It was long. Exactly. Hugh, Hugh Fernley Wings. There is only one. There's only one of them. I've Mind you, in England, there's a lot of double-barreled names. I've never met a John Smith. I've met seven other Paul Wests. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, the enthusiasm to start with some wild stories, <laughs> but then getting into some gritty stuff towards the end. So I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Bit of gardening inspiration from a chef. How does that happen? Well, Paul West has told us a few things, but how did I get started? And you probably heard it before, but plant herbs. If you plant what they call hard herbs, they're really easy to grow, very little maintenance. Things like thyme, sage, rosemary, even parsley, although plant that in a pot, otherwise it ends up everywhere. And then take it in stages. Use those herbs in cooking. Enjoy those fresh herbs in your cooking. You'll never have to go to the supermarket and buy them again. And they're wickedly overpriced. You'll thank me later. Next step, maybe plant a lemon tree. 
You know, you use loads of lemons in cooking. Delicious. And then if you want to go the next step, you've got to think about things that are easy to grow and that the family loves. I plant things like spinach because it just keeps on giving. Or you plant carrots because kids love the fact that they're one thing above the ground and another thing underground. It's just a total surprise. So you know what? You don't have to sustain the whole family with your garden. It's not about self-sufficiency. Paul said that, but it's about adding little things into your diet and into your daily meals that are delicious and have a little bit of home about them. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski. Audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. (laughs) 